Okay. Hello, there you are, right on time. Good afternoon. All right. Yes, they are back in the building. Glad to, glad to see them both. All right, so we are here. We are working our way through the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, tonight we're going to be in chapter 29. We looked at the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience last week. And this chapter 29 uh, deals with the renewal of the covenant. So this is the last section of Deuteronomy, uh, beginning with uh, chapter 29 through the end of chapter uh, 30. This is the last section of this book. Moses basically basically Moses's final sermon so to speak uh, to the Lord's people so they're renewing the covenant you know in um, in marriages you have sometimes with couples they will like renew their their vows you know some of them do it every some people do it every year. Some people do it every 10 years, every five years, whatever. There's nothing like biblical about doing that. So, you know, it's not a sin to do it, but it's not necessarily a biblical concept to renew your vows. That's just something that that some people do. Uh, but you're, you're renewing the covenant that you have with your spouse. And so when I was reading this chapter, I was thinking about the the same thing so um, this is at the culmination of 40 years in the wilderness remember Deuteronomy takes place after they are in the wilderness and it's the last 38 years of their years in the wilderness uh, recorded in the book of Deuteronomy so after 40 years uh, 40 years before this, rather, God made his covenant with them. Um, so now he's renewing this covenant with them. So that's what we're going to deal with tonight is the, the renewal of the covenant in this chapter. So let's uh, pray and ask the Lord for his help and to bless our time together in his word. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the renewing of covenants. Thank you, Lord, that the ultimate renewal, the ultimate covenant that has been renewed is the covenant of Christ, the covenant of grace that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. The once for all sacrifice for our sins. And Father, I pray that you bless our time and your word tonight as we uh, look at this chapter and the renewal of the covenant. Refresh us by your word. Strengthen us, Lord. Encourage us in the spirit. Lord, just help us to understand your word with the Spirit's help and help me to teach it in Christ's name. Amen. So they're in Moab and it says here at the beginning these are the words of the covenant that the Lord 
commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab besides the covenant that he made with them at Horeb. So the covenant at Horeb was uh, recorded. Uh, Horeb is basically Mount Sinai. That's where the first covenant was made. And we find that in the book of uh, Exodus. It was after the Ten Commandments had been given and explained. And I think around the 23rd, 24th chapter of Exodus, they were uh, at, at Mount Sinai. Cause that's where Moses went up into, uh, you know, the mountain. So Israel had made a covenant with them. And this is uh, Exodus 24, verses 7 through 8 is where this first covenant was made. So that is what Moses is referring to in this first verse. So this is Exodus 24, 7 through 8. It says, Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. That's the covenant. God said it and the people said what? They will do it. They will be obedient. That is the essence of a covenant. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to to all these words so the covenant was first made in the wilderness when they first got into the wilderness after the giving of the ten commandments and after that Moses read the covenant to the people and what did the people have to do they had to agree to that covenant in order for it to be a covenant it had to be agreed upon so uh, there are many covenants in scripture uh, God made a covenant with Noah. That's what the rainbow symbol is about. I think that's in, uh, is it, I can't remember Genesis, not Genesis 9 and 6. But God made a covenant with um, Noah that he would, no, he would not destroy the earth again by flood. That's what the rainbow is about. That's the true rainbow, by the way. Not the sexual perverts who have co-opted that flag for their cause. The rainbow is God's covenant symbol that he would not flood the earth again. He would not judge the earth by, by flood again. So you got the Noahic covenant. You got the uh, Abrahamic covenant, the covenant that God made with Abraham, that he was going to make him a great uh, nation, that all the worlds, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through him. Then he, he made a covenant. Also, he renewed that covenant and reaffirmed it with Isaac and also with Jacob. Okay, uh, you had the Mosaic Covenant. You had the covenant with David that uh, the Lord made with David. If you read through First and Second Samuel, uh, he made the covenant with David that uh, there would never fail to be anyone on his throne, which ultimately pointed uh, to Christ. You had the covenant that God made with Israel. Uh, that's in the book of uh, Ezekiel and also the book of Jeremiah, that God will pour out his spirit on his people that he would write the word on our hearts and that's part of the covenant that we're under uh, God, God has written his word on our hearts by his spirit okay uh, that God will renew us by his spirit that was how renewal was going to take place so that was the covenant that was made with Israel that is an extension to us and of course we have the covenant of Christ where we're saved by grace uh, through faith you know Christ is our substitute down in our place for our sins fulfilling the law fulfilling all the prophets fulfilling all the Old Testament prophecies concerning uh, himself so those are just a few of the uh, covenants that are in scripture but a covenant is an agreement between two parties and so 
in this passage right here we see back in Exodus that God gave his covenant to Israel and Israel agreed to obey that covenant all that the Lord has said we would do and be obedient that's what covenant is all about and when someone breaks covenant that is a sin against the Lord which Israel would do because they did break covenant with God uh, as we see in subsequent books so that's what we think about when we think about a covenant so this was made at Mount Sinai so it says here now we get into what Moses call Israel to say it says now Moses in verse 2 call all Israel and said to them so what he's doing is he's now reminding them they're about to go into the promised land he's reminding them of what God did for them in the past so first he says you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and to all his land the great trials which your eyes have seen the signs and these great wonders Yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear to this very day. So Israel has saw great wonders from the hand of God since coming out of Egypt. And remember this generation that, that was going to the promised land, they were young. They were really young, but they were old enough to remember uh, God bringing uh, them out through the Red Sea and, and drowning Pharaoh and all his chariots in the Red Sea. They saw Moses striking the rock and water coming out. They saw the, what is this, coming down from he uh, heaven, the manna. So they saw all these great wonders that God had done. They even saw his wonders in judgment where he opened up the earth and swallowed people who had rebelled against Moses and Aaron. They saw those wonders too that made them tremble uh, with fear. They saw the plagues. They saw the death of the firstborn. They saw the Red Sea parted. They saw again the armies destroyed. They saw the victories won by prayer. They saw all these great things. They drank again miraculously that water from the rock. They saw miracle after miracle after miracle. Now, the sad thing about it, Moses said here, yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear to this very day so the miracles in and of themselves guess what they were not enough they couldn't accomplish anything in the heart of Israel man this is a great gospel truth people can see people can hear about God people can talk about God but unless God works in people's hearts by his spirit they cannot change they cannot change. Think about when Christ was on the earth. The very people who rejected him saw the miracles. The Pharisees saw the miracles. But they were so legalistic. Oh, you're not supposed to heal on the Sabbath. <laughs> okay. We saw your disciples uh, fasting on the Sabbath and, 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 and all these different things. And, and they saw all these miracles that Jesus had performed. Jesus healed a man who was born blind. Uh, I think of John the ninth chapter and told him don't go tell anyone but he went and said something anyway because hey he was blind and now he saw and the Pharisees caught wind of it and they came to Jesus and rebuked him for healing this man on the Sabbath so they were adhering to the letter and not the spirit of the law 
They saw all these miracles. They, they, they were not looking at the miracles as the fact that this, that Jesus was proving that he was God, that he was master over what he created. That is why Jesus performed those miracles to prove that he was Messiah, that he is God, because only God could open the eyes of the blind. Only God could make the lame walk. Only God could raise Lazarus from the dead. Only God could turn what water into wine. So those miracles were to prove that Jesus is God, that he is the Messiah. He is the one sent of God. But in spite of all that, guess what? People still rejected him. They still yelled what? Crucify him. So Moses is saying this to these people. That these miracles could not accomplish anything in the hearts of Israel. If God didn't send his spirit to change their hearts, guess what? It wouldn't have made any difference. It's like the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Where the rich, uh, Lazarus was in the uh, bosom of Abraham and the rich man was perishing in hell. And the scripture says it was a great gulf fixed between them. And then the, the uh, rich man you know, asked Lazarus, could you just you know, drop some water from heaven to to you know to to wet my tongue then he said could you go back and you know we first say he can't do it because there's a great gulf fixed between them and then he said you know can you go back and and tell my basically my friends and my family members about all this and then he said <laughs> he said if they won't hear Moses or they won't hear the prophets you think they're going to hear from someone who raised from the dead that's how wicked man's heart is towards the gospel. People can see God change your life. People can see Christ come into your life and save you and change you. Some may say, oh, it's just a phase. Well, they may look at it and say, good for you. <laughs> you know, they may say good for you good for thee but not for me they can see God change your heart change your life change the course of your life and still not believe God has to do that work where in the heart so that's what he was saying here with Israel yet the Lord has not given you a what heart because that perception starts in the heart some people think the greatest help to evangelism would be more miracles. If they just, if they just saw a miracle, <laughs> you know, they would come to Christ. But do you know the greatest miracle is the supernatural work of God in someone's heart? Salvation is the greatest miracle. We're, we're, we're going through it right now in Ephesians. We were dead. We were spiritually dead. We were unable to come to God. We were, not, we were unable. Dead people can't do anything. Remember, dead people don't have agency. Dead people are dead. They're just laying there. They are helpless. They are hopeless. We're spiritually dead. We have no ability to come to God at all. No unsaved person has the ability to come to God. They're not seeking God. They're running away from God. 
They're not almost there. No, either you're dead or you're alive. You're not half dead. Okay, there's no such thing as a half dead person or a half alive person. Either a person is spiritually dead or they're spiritually alive. Because Paul says in Romans 3, no one seeks after God. So the greatest miracle is being brought from being spiritually dead to being made alive. Okay, remember, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive. That's the greatest miracle right there, the supernatural work of God in the life of those whom he saves. If they can't see that difference, it doesn't matter what you say to them. We have loved ones that see the difference that, that God has made in our life. They see our commitment to the Lord. And they're saying in their hearts, good for you. That's just, that ain't my thing, or I'll come when I'm ready. <laughs> no. So Moses reminded them that although God did these miracles, he didn't give them a heart. Jesus talked about this in the parable of the sower in uh, I think Matthew 13. I remember preaching through the parables a few years ago. Uh, he, he talked about this. He taught, he taught the Israel in parables because those other listeners would not be able to perceive what Jesus was saying uh, to them unless God gives them eyes to hear, gives them a heart to understand, and give them eyes to perceive. He was quoting uh, Isaiah when he said that. So Moses goes from talking about being brought out of Egypt to the wilderness. So I like this part right here, verses 5 through 9. It says here, And I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. And I love this part right here. Your clothes have not worn out on you. And your sandals have not worn out on your feet. You must have broken socks or something. <laughs> You have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or similar drink, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. And when you come to this place, Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, came out against us to battle, and we conquered them. We took their land and gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and had the tribe of Manasseh. Therefore, keep the words of the covenant and do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. So think about this. During this 40 years in the wilderness, none of their clothes wore out. They had some good fabric, didn't they? <laughs> but none of their clothes, none of the, you know, their, their feet were still fine. And this doesn't mean that, I mean, when I read this when I was a younger Christian, I thought, man, they, they stood up and walked all that time. Like they didn't sit down or anything, you know. Yeah, they, yeah, they sat and slept and all that stuff. I was thinking, them, I was thinking about this more literally, like, man, they, they walked around all that time for 40 years. Well, I'm sure they probably, it's still 40 years whether they had a change or not. They're still a long time. You know, I don't know if they had, yeah. yeah so, but. They didn't have good cushion in them like ours do. So, so that's, that makes it even more miraculous. But for 40 years, their sandals did not wear out. And though they had no bread to eat or no wine to drink, guess what? The Lord still 
provider. God provided their needs. Why? Because he is their God. So the miracle itself, again, besides the miracles that he performed uh, against Egypt, it was also a miracle that they were in the wilderness for 40 years and they basically were still as fresh as day one. Hard marching in the wilderness and their sandals didn't wear out. And wilderness, if you think about it, people, wilderness areas don't provide enough food and water for people. You know, wilderness, anytime you go into wilderness, especially over there in the Middle East, it's barren. It's nothing, no vegetation. So that wilderness didn't have enough vegetation to feed two to three million people. But guess what God did? God provided for them. And each one of these great wonders is proof of God's power and God's love for his people. That's what we see here. So how, how, how do we think about this today? This world is a wilderness, right? <laughs> it's like the wild, wild west. Our world is a wilderness. Our world is a mess. But what does God do for his people? He provides for us. Sometimes our life can feel like a wilderness, <laughs> right? You know, we have wilderness times and wilderness moments in our life. But things just seem to be going bonkers. But what, was, what must we anchor our hope in? The fact that God will provide, that God will take care of us, and that God always takes care of us, that God will always demonstrate his love for us. God gives us bread and wine to drink. You know, this bread and wine in here points to the communion sacrament of Christ's blood and his body. That's what it points to. That it shows us that who is enough for us? Christ, his work on the cross, his sacrifice, his atonement, his substitutionary death provides enough for the believer. Christ is that manna from heaven. That's what he said in John the sixth chapter. Jesus told them that they ate the bread, but they died. We eat of the bread of Christ and we do what we live forever. We have eternal life. Christ said, I am the bread of life. Look at turn to John six right quick. Jesus talks about this in that discourse. I remember back when I was preaching through John's gospel about 10 years ago, I spent like three months in the sixth chapter because it's, it's so rich, uh, John, the sixth chapter. But Christ said that he is the bread from heaven. He, he is enough. And that's what God was telling them this miracle right here. So if you look at John, the sixth chapter. Let's see here. Six and twenty two. Look at uh, 25. See, when they found him, uh, people were chasing after Jesus because he had just fed the, uh, he had just walked on water. Okay? So they saw him perform these miracles. He fed the 5,000 early in this chapter. So, man, after he fed those 5,000, guess what? People wanted more from him. 
So that's the kind of context of this. So verse uh, 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, oh, excuse me, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. And they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see you and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. So the manna that was falling down those 40 years was Christ. So Jesus, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Okay, so Jesus was saying he is the bread from heaven. He was in that manner. He was the manner. He was the one who provided for them in the wilderness. They didn't need bread and water. Christ was their bread and water. And for us as believers, guess what? Christ is our bread and water. He is enough for us. He is sufficient for us. God in the wilderness provided that miracle for Israel. Israel didn't ask for manna. God gave them that manna. And the thing is, they had enough just for each day. Give us this day our daily bread. That's what that harkens back to. They had just enough manna for each day. And of course, as they did, as we can do sometimes, sometimes we can think that God's provision for us is not enough. And we begin to mumble and grumble and complain just as Israel did. Like when they, I think in Numbers 14, when they, uh, they said they wanted quail. They got tired of eating, eating this uh, manna. This, uh, besides this here manna, you know, in Egypt we had leeks and, and, and pomegranates and all this, all this other stuff. But here we have this manna. <laughs> you know, oh, that we would be back in Egypt. We had all this nice food. Because what they were telling God was that what you were providing is not enough. And we do that with the Lord sometimes too. The Lord provides for us graciously every day. Christ provides graciously for us every day. But sometimes in our sinfulness we can say in our hearts, Lord, this is not enough. You're not sufficient enough. I need, I need more. This is not working. You need to do something else. But Moses was telling them the miracle of that provision for them in the wilderness those 40 years that God provided for them. Next it gives the parties of the covenant. So who's involved in this covenant here? Back in Deuteronomy here. He says all of you stand today before the Lord your God. Your leaders, so you got leaders of your tribes and your elders and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones and your wives 
Also, the stranger who is in your camp, from the one who cuts your wood to the one who draws your water. It means all their slaves. That you may enter into the covenant with the Lord your God and into his oath, which the Lord your God makes you today, makes with you today. That he may establish you today as a people for himself and that he may be God to you just as he has spoken to you and just as he has sworn to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob. I make this covenant and this oath not with you alone, but with him who stands here with us today before the Lord, our God, as well as with him who is not here with us today. So this means that in, in essence, in summary, this covenant was made with the entire nation. I mean, he went from the rooter to the tutor, as they say in the country. The leaders, the elders, the officers, the men, the children, the wives, and the stranger who were slaves. It was made for all of them. Okay? So this was an all-encompassing covenant. No one was exempt from it. This also points to the gospel in the fact that all who believe in Christ are his covenant people. All who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are his sons and daughters through faith in him. No one is exempt from being in covenant with Christ if they believe. Christ will not turn away anyone who comes to him. No matter what their station is in life, because when Moses gives all these different uh, groups of people, he's talking about from the highest in their society to the lowest, to the servants. So from the leaders all the way down to the servants, all of them are part of this covenant. All of them were uh, to obey this covenant. The gospel does not discriminate. The gospel is available to all. The gospel message is for all from the leaders, from the top down to the poorest person. The gospel is sufficient to save them. All of them are qualified to be God's covenant people. No one is exempt at all. No one is exempt at all. The Lord will accept all who come to him. So why does God do this? That he may establish them today as a people for himself. Again, all of Israel was included in God's desire to uh, enter into covenant. To be the people of himself. We read that, I think, two weeks ago in 1 Peter. Uh, or, or I think 1 Peter 1. No, 1 Peter 2. It says, you are a chosen generation. A holy nation. A peculiar people. We are that. We are a people of God's own possession. God wasn't looking just for a few prominent people. He wasn't just looking for talented people. Okay? He was looking for a whole nation in this context to be a people to himself. And he's looking for that now. 
He's looking for those with whom to make that covenant with through Christ. And he's still saving people. He's still adding to his family. So that gospel, that 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 um, way to become God's covenant people is available to all. And then Moses says, as well as with him who is not here with us today. So this includes the descendants of the nation of Israel. So it was extended to those who are yet to be born. Do you know that salvation is in Christ until he's come until he comes back is going to always be available to generations yet unborn that that covenant of salvation doesn't stop with us it continues in perpetuity until Christ comes back so our children our grandchildren uh, great grandchildren yet unborn generations yet unborn guess what that covenant of salvation that that call to salvation will be available even to them I mean, that's a great gospel truth. Future generations, future generations will be able to be part of Christ's uh, covenant. We thank the Lord for that truth. Now we get down to the ominous part. So now we have the covenant. Now what's going to happen to those who break the covenant? Verses 16 through 20 tell us. So it says here, you know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst, the nations through which you passed. And you have seen the detestable things, the idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. There's that word. The ESV says, beware. That's what the ESV says, beware. Okay. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart and says, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. Man, (laughs) this will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him. Rather, the anger of the Lord uh, and his jealousy will smoke against that man. Woof. And the curses written in, in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under the heaven. God did this with Achan in the book of uh, Joshua. Wiped his whole family out. And the Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for calamity in accordance with all the curses of the covenant written in the book of the law. I'm going to just stop right there for right now. So, beware. Now, first God said, you know, Israel has seen all the abominations of all these pagan nations. The Amorites, the Hittites, the Moabites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, all those ites. Israel, the Canaanites, they saw all of these nations that they passed through. They saw all the abominations, all the idols of their pagan neighbors. They saw this. 
So God basically promised that anyone who turns away from him and serve those other gods, they would never have peace of heart. Again, idolatry starts in the heart. Verse 18, beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the other gods. Remember, it's all in the heart. You know, John Calvin, the reformer, said the human heart is a factory of idols. Our hearts are always manufacturing idols. Always. We can make idols out of anything. It doesn't have to be a material good. It can be an idea. You can make an idol out of an ideology. You can make an idol out of your children or, or a relationship, or out of your job, or out of um, fame. Of course, we know physical objects like your phone. You can make an idol out of your Bible. You can make an idol out of church. You can make an idol out of your car. I mean, just our heart just comes up with, <laughs> you know, it manufactures idols. We make, we make them up as we go. So God was saying it's, it's, it's that heart. So they won't have peace in their heart if they do that. Because what does he say? He says, beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. You know, that's not good. And what that person would do, as he said, he will, he will bless himself in his heart and says, I have peace. And, and th this is how foolish our hearts are, right? These people who break covenant with God, they're saying, oh, I'm good. I'm, I'm fine. I'm going to be all right. It's like people who are living in sin, especially unbelievers, because a believer can't live in sin. You have unbelievers who are living in uh, unrepentant, habitual sin. They think because everything is going well with their life that they're good. Because judgment is not executed speedily, guess what? They continue to be even more and more wicked. That is the way the human heart works. And so God said in Israel, don't let your heart be like that. Don't bless yourself in your heart and say, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. Because this will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. Man, that is, woof. That's how deceitful our hearts can be. A person may have an immediate sense of peace of their heart or in their hearts. A rake sinner will feel confident in their heart. They may say, oh, I have a peace about this decision. Although it's a sinful decision, they may say, oh, I got, I got peace about this. But this is the thing about peace and rebellion against God. You can write this down and take it to the bank. Peace is an illusion if it's not from God. Because people think because they feel good about something that 
somehow it must be, as they say, a quote God thing when everything is a God thing. <laughs> but they have this so-called peace that comes over them. A person can do something absolutely sinful and feel at peace about it. Does it mean that it was right to do? No. It's an illusion. And they're deceived. They're self-deceived. And that's what happens with the human heart. And that's what happens with those in this passage who break covenants. And because of that, they will be swept away. Think about when a bomb goes off in a plane. Before that bomb goes off, guess what? It's, it's peaceful on the plane. And all of a sudden, boom, the bomb goes off. But before that, it's, it's peace and calm. That's the illusion. A sinner may be, and hear this, a sinner may in some sense be untroubled in their heart. But the reason why is because they are spiritually blind. That's why. They're spiritually dead in their sins. They have this illusion that all is well. Just as God in the book of Isaiah, God uh, condemned the prophets because the prophets, these false prophets, were saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. God condemned the false prophet, prophets of Israel because Israel was rebelling against God. You're reading it in the book of First uh, and Second Kings. All these wicked kings setting up these high places and all these people worshiping uh, Baal and, and, and the Asherah and, 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 and worshiping the fertility goddess and, and, and all, all this wickedness. But the prophets are coming to them saying, peace, hey, everything's fine. You all keep worshiping Kamash. You all keep worshiping at the Asherah pole. You all keep uh, sacrificing your children to Moloch. Just go ahead. Everything's fine. Just as King Ahab, when, uh, you know, he didn't like the prophet, uh, I think it was uh, Ahaziah, because Ahaziah always, he said, I don't want to talk to him because, you know, he, he doesn't always prophesy good to me. He went to the prophets who would prophesy for him instead of the ones who were truly the prophets of God, because he wanted, he wanted those false prophets to affirm him in his sin and his rebellion against God. So he consulted with the younger prophets. He didn't consult with the older prophets who were the true prophets of God. He didn't want to hear them. Why? Because they were going to prophesy God's truth to him and, and he didn't have time for that. So those false prophets saying, Ahab, you're good, man. You know, he's building all these high places. He has altars inside of the temple of God. Blasphemous. And his wife was just as bad. But yet these prophets were telling him, you're good, Ahab. But he wasn't. It was an illusion. And this is what God was warning Israel against. And this is what he warns us against. When we choose to turn away and disobey God and willfully rebel against him 
this is what will will happen. Never think that the sinner is at peace with God. They're not. Never think that they are. And he said that the Lord would not spare that man. The Lord will not be willing. This is verse 20. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy. I, I, I like this language. This is the ESV language will smoke against that man. That's like fierce wrath. Isaiah 14, 22 says it. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. David said in Psalm 37, fret not yourselves because of evildoers, nor be envious against the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither like the herb. There's no peace for the wicked. There's no peace for those who reject God. We talk about that all the time. God is always speaking to their conscience. God is always calling the wicked to repentance. They are not at peace. They give you the illusion of peace on their social media. They give you the illusion of peace in interviews. They give you the illusion of peace because they have all these material goods, all this material wealth. They give you the illusion that everything is fine. And guess what? You can be just like me. But there's no peace. The score is going to be settled on either side of eternity. No one can forsake the Lord and escape the consequences. That's what this covenant breaking was about because guess what we saw it play out in Joshua after Joshua died we saw it in the book of Judges we see it in 1st and 2nd Samuel we're seeing it in 1st and 2nd Kings that no one can forsake the Lord and escape the consequences not one single person there's no one on this earth who will ever escape the consequences of rejecting the Lord no one. As believers, oh, we may say, oh, man, Lord, they're getting away with this. No, they're not. These doctors that have murdered babies in these abortion clinics, unless they repent, they're going to meet the judgment of God. They're going to have to pay for murdering these babies. These legislators, these politicians who vote for the murdering of babies unless they repent. Because the Lord is mighty to save if they turn to him. But unless they repent, guess what? They're going to meet the fierce wrath of God. His is going to smoke against them. These people who are mutilating children and adults. I showed my wife a picture. I'm not going to show it in here. Uh, when was that? Monday, Tuesday, Monday night. It was it was gross of a woman. She had some skin cut off her leg. She, she was supposed to be a, a so-called man. 
but I'm not going to go into further description, but it was a very gross looking picture of trying to look like a man an appendage and it looked horrible. Whether it's an adult or a child, doctors that do that, mutilating the image of God, affirming people in their self-delusion and self-deception, guess what? Unless they repent, they're going to have to stand before God and give an account for marring his image bearers and affirming them in their delusion. So when we see this, because they're breaking covenant with God, we're not supposed to mar the image of God. We're not supposed to murder. We're not supposed to do any of those things. We're not supposed to go against God's design for any reason. There are going to be consequences, and that's what Israel is facing. Now, what's the purpose of judgment here as we get these last few verses here? There's a purpose for this judgment against the covenant breaker. Beginning at verse 21. The Lord will separate him from all the tribes of Israel for adversity, according to all the curses of the covenant that are written in the book. I think I read most of this already. He's going to separate them. Okay. Verse 22. In the next generation, your children who rise up after you and a foreigner who comes from a far land will say, when they see the afflictions of that land and the sickness with which the Lord has had made it sick, the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing growing where no plant can sprout. This was Sodom and Gomorrah and overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeb Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath. All the nations will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land? What caused the heat of this great anger? And what would the people say? It is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served the other gods and worshiped them. Gods whom they had not known and whom they had not uh, allotted to them, whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon all it the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are this day. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. Hmm. So God's purpose in bringing judgment against the covenant breaker was for the sake of the coming generation. God didn't want the coming generation to take on the sins of the generation before. Think about it. This generation right here that Moses is speaking to was not the generation that came out of Egypt. These were the children. Because remember, when the 12 spies went um, to you know, spy out the land and came back, 10 gave an evil report and 2 gave a good report and that was the, the, uh, Joshua and Caleb and so what did God do for their rebellion everyone who was 20 years old and older died out in the wilderness okay all of them died out why because God did not want that younger generation to be rebellious like their fathers were 
He told them their carcasses were going to fall uh, in the wilderness. And over those 40 years, it did. Because that's, that was how important covenant is to God. So God did this for the sake of the coming generation of children and also for the foreigner because he didn't want the foreigner to learn rebellion against God. He wanted the foreigner to worship him as the one true God. And he wanted the subsequent generations to worship him as God and not be like their rebellious uh, forefathers. And this is important when we think about those of us who are believers and we have children. You know, my hope for my, my, my wife and I is that our children will see our faithfulness to the Lord and walk after the Lord as they've seen their parents do. And then that they may marry a woman who's a godly woman so that they can build a family too to do the same thing, to walk after their parents. They can't say that their parents didn't do that, that they didn't have that example. That should be the goal of every parent grandparents with your grandchildren your grandchildren should see your faithfulness to the Lord and be encouraged by that and since we live in a more nuclear uh, well not, not nuclear a more scattered society than they did back then theirs is more family oriented ours is not we can encourage others un uh, co-workers friends who are not believers to walk after the Lord based on our faithfulness to God, our commitment to his church. God was concerned about his name being made glorious among his people. That was his concern. So his purpose for bringing judgment against, that's why the sin of Achan, when Achan sinned against God, God, took the whole family out they had to basically take sin out of the camp so that sin would not be in the camp that's why the Lord did that that was that was what that was showing that there, there could not be sin in the camp because guess what if someone someone could be inspired by what Achan did in violating uh, God's uh, covenant so that's why God did that and it sent a message to everyone else to not do that so that's 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 why God was doing this with this with this covenant so that the subsequent generations could could see look at Joshua 7 since I referenced it now this is when Israel was defeated uh, by AI AI was a small tiny faction and Israel lost battle against them, but it was the reason why. So look at the sixth, seventh chapter. I'll read this fast. I can't. We only got a few minutes. I'm kind of skipped through it here. So in verse six, Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth. And his faithful to of the Lord. Verse seven. Alas, O Lord. Why have you brought this people over to Jordan at all to give us to the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I com uh, commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. 
Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before the enemies. They turn their backs before the enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will not be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate your people, and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, <coughs> excuse me, the devoted things you missed, devoted things were idols. They came there from somewhere. Okay, so what they had to do, they had to cast lots. Um, verse 15, he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he's transgressed. So Joshua rose early in the morning, blah, blah, blah. And then, okay, verse 18. And he brought near his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zibdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, was taken. And Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me, what have you done? Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord, God of Israel. And this is what I did when I saw the spoils. You know, he took something he wasn't supposed to take. Verse 22, Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel took Achan, the silver, the bar of gold, his sons and daughters and his oxen and his donkeys and sheep, his tent and all that he had and brought them to the valley of Achor. And Joshua asked him, why did you bring this trouble upon us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned here with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. Why? Because he broke covenant. He broke covenant. And God didn't want these other people, the foreigners among them, the other tribes, do the same thing that Achan did. So that's why there was such harsh punishment. Now, I will say this as we get ready to close. God is... In, in, even in the midst of all this covenant breaking and the punishment that comes with it God is still merciful in this way when we come to Christ and we are saved by Christ we enter a new covenant God gives us his spirit and the Holy Spirit helps us to obey him and keep his commandments but this is the great thing about the Lord. This is the great thing about being saved through Christ. When we sin against the Lord, God doesn't cut us off. God doesn't punish us. He chastises us. Chastisement, remember? Chastisement and punishment, two different things. Christ was punished for our sins. The great gospel truth for believers is that when we sin against God, which in essence, when we break covenant with God. The Lord is gracious and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's first John one and nine. that's why we do an assurance of forgiveness. We are assured of forgiveness 
in Christ. As God's people, we don't have to worry about being cut off. All that come to Christ, guess what? He loses none of us. Christ said in John 10 that no one can pluck us out of his hand. No one. No thing. Christ said in John 6, all that the Father has given him, he has lost none of them. And he will raise us up on the last day. We're Christ forevermore. Peter says that we're kept by the power of God. That's 2 Peter. We're kept by his power. When we as believers sin against God, he doesn't cut us off. He brings us unto himself. He forgives us as we confess our sins to him. And guess what? He receives us. He continues to receive us. And for the sinner, the unbeliever, when they come to him, in faith. What does he do? He receives them as one of his own. He adopts them into his family. And they become one of his covenant children by faith in Christ. That is the gracious, graciousness and the mercy of God. God was still merciful to Israel because this this doesn't seem like mercy, but it was because you know what? God still allowed Israel to remain. Why? Because he didn't break covenant. God didn't break covenant with Abraham. If God broke covenant with Abraham, there would have been no Christ. If God broke covenant with David, there would be no, no Christ sitting on his throne. If God broke covenant with Noah, he could have caused it to rain again as, as sinful as man is. God is faithful in keeping his covenant. That's what we see. So even in the judgment that comes with breaking the covenant, it is because God does what? He keeps his covenant. There are consequences for sin because God is consistent with his covenant. But there's also blessings on obedience. Because God is faithful to his covenant. Amen. Let's pray as we close right quick. Father, thank you. Lord, you're gracious. We thank you, Lord, that you are the covenant keeping God. You are the God who keeps covenant. And Lord, help us to see that you are faithful. Even when we are faithless, Lord, you remain faithful. Help us to see, Lord, the glory of the covenant that we have with you through Jesus Christ, through salvation in him. We pray, Lord, as we always do, that you use your word, use this message to encourage the saints, to convict sinners and bring them to a saving faith in you. In Christ's name I pray, amen.